Well, again, we're glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, again, my name's Jared, a pastor here at Hope Fellowship. I want to say welcome. Also, extend a special welcome to you if you're visiting or new to our church here. We're glad to have you with us. If you are new, uh, on the back of the bulletin, there's a little QR code there. Uh, that will send you to a link where you can fill out a visitor card. Love to have you do that so we can get to know you, get in touch with you. So please go ahead and fill that out if you can for us. Uh, one brief announcement as well before we, uh, before we continue. Um, if, uh, if you've been with Hope for a while, you know, or really much time, you know that one of, our, uh, one of the essential parts of who we are as a church is our mission groups, the groups that meet throughout the week. Uh, those will be beginning in September, and so if you are not part of a mission group or haven't been part of one or would like to be, uh, please come let me know, talk to me about that, and we'd love to get you involved in one of those, those weekly groups. All right, so we are continuing our series in Jonah. We are at Jonah chapter 3, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We'll be reading that in a moment, but before we do that, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, as we just sang, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. We ask that you would speak through your word today, Father, that you would do those things, cause our hard hearts to soften, cause our unrepentant hearts to repent. And would we find great hope and comfort in the mercy that you have offered to us through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, several weeks ago, I was speaking with uh, Adam Pratt, who goes to our church, about a trip he was taking. Or if I understand this correctly, he was planning to run a marathon that had this very unusual start. If you know Adam, he runs these super long marathons, like tens and tens of miles, much more than a normal marathon. But he was going to run a marathon that began... Uh, by jumping out of a plane. So he was going to jump out of a plane and then run a marathon. So if you've ever had an adrenaline rush uh, that would come from things like jumping out of a plane, um, you know what that feeling is like of just basically your body kind of like being done after that. So I cannot imagine the feeling of trying to run that, that many miles after jumping out of a plane. Now, if you ever have been skydiving before, then you know that uh, the scariest part is for most people, not actually falling when you're in the air. The scariest part is when you are next up, when you're in the plane, right? And you're walking towards the door. Um, I went skydiving in college, um, and I remember this feeling very vividly of when it was my turn next. And the hatch was open, the guy in front of me had just gone out of the plane, and my body started rebelling against me. It was really interesting. I got, um, it's like my brain and my body were like fighting each other. Um, I got to the door, and I start just like, trembling uncontrollably. And the, the instructor asked, you sure you want to do this? And like, in this probably very high-pitched voice, I like basically screamed at him like, yes, yes. <clears throat> um, but in that moment, as I was sitting on the plane, the reason I was so scared is there's not many times in your life when you, when you at least are cognizant of the fact that you are fully putting your life in one person's hands. Right? I was completely throwing my life onto this guy's expertise, onto his equipment, and trusting that in the next 10 minutes that neither of those things were going to fail me, he was actually going to make sure that we landed alive on the ground, which we did, uh, which I'm grateful for. Um, that is similar, at least in some ways, to what the Ninevites are going to show us today about what true repentance does. Um, 
we're going to see a picture of true repentance in the Ninevites' reaction to Jonah's message. Repentance that's characterized by this reality that the Ninevites recognize that in order to survive, they have to fully throw themselves onto the character of God. They have to entirely entrust themselves that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he promises to do. Their only hope, as the point they realize that their sins, their sins of violence, at least that's what's referred to in, in Scripture, their sins of violence have left them to the point where they had no hope. They had no hope before a wrathful God who would judge that sin of violence against other people. And so they had to repent and trust that God would have mercy on them. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at true repentance, how it's characterized, or how we see what true repentance is in the story of the Ninevites. And how true repentance does, at least in this story, three things we see about true repentance. True repentance believes God's word. True repentance turns from sin. It's demonstrated by turning from sin. And then finally, true repentance is met by the mercy of God. So those will be our main points today. True repentance believes God's word, is demonstrated by turning away from sin, and is met by the mercy of God. Now before we read this, kids, we are so glad that you've been with us this summer. You've done a great job being a part of these services. We're very glad to have you with us. Um, I've got a little challenge for you. I believe two weeks ago or three weeks ago, you had a chance to draw a picture of what was the story was. But today what I want you to do is I want you to listen really carefully, kind of like a detective. I want you to see if you can figure out what is it that the Ninevites learn about God today. Okay? That's going to be a little tricky because there's actually a few things that the Ninevites learn about God. So I want you to listen carefully and see if you can figure out what is it that these Ninevites, the people who lived in Nineveh, what they learn about God today. And if you can figure it out, I'll be up here. Please come tell me afterwards. I'd love to figure out or hear what you figured out that God taught the Ninevites about himself. All right, so let's go to God's word. Um, Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read the first four verses and then the, then the first half of verse 5. Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, if you've uh, not been with us the past few weeks, uh, up until this chapter, the book of Jonah has uh, focused primarily on the prophet Jonah, uh, his attempts essentially to escape this job that God gave him to give this message to the Ninevites. Now, if you look back in, in Jonah 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, God tells Jonah to go and to do this. The word of the Lord comes to him, actually it's verse 2, go to, go to Nineveh and tell them that their evil has become so great that God was going to destroy them. So God tells Jonah to do this, and Jonah runs the opposite direction. Right, he goes, gets on a boat to get as far as possible away from the place God had told him to go. He gets on this boat, God sends a huge storm, and the sailors on the boat eventually, at, at Jonah's suggestion, throw Jonah overboard. But that's not before Jonah tells them about Yahweh, tells them about his God. 
And we find out that at the end of chapter 1, these sailors go and actually make sacrifices to God. They go and worship Yahweh. So Jonah's missionary work happens despite himself. And at the end of chapter 1, God sends a huge fish to swallow him. And so the second chapter of Jonah gives this, this, this tiny little snapshot of the time that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish. Right? This prayer that he prays in, cha- in chapter 2 that reads a lot like a psalm. Uh, but as we heard last week, despite many, many different biblical allusions, a lot of religious language that's wrapped into this, into this chapter of the psalm, uh, there's no confession of sin. Not once does Jonah actually confess that he had done wrong, that he had run from God instead of obeying his word. But he did get some things right about, about the Lord. One of them was that salvation comes from the Lord, as you see in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from God. So the fish spits Jonah up, and he is left a humbled prophet. And we know he, he had spent some time in the royal courts of Israel with kings. And so this was probably a very, um, this was a very humbling experience for Jonah. Right? He'd just been vomited by a fish. He was rancid, I'm sure. Some think that his skin and his hair were probably splotchy and bleached white from the acid in the fish. And so at this point, God's word comes to him again in our chapter, verse 3. And it's almost like we're right back where we started. Right? You, could, you, you, could, you could see a, a scenario where all that we needed was just chapter 3 to understand what Jonah's job was. But instead, we get this entire book to understand some of Jonah's motivations. But again, today, we're actually zooming away from Jonah. Our, our vision's coming away from Jonah, and we're going to look at the Ninevites. And so chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord gives Jonah another chance to deliver the message to Nineveh. And this time, he goes in the right direction. He goes towards Nineveh. Now, the, the trip to Nineveh wouldn't have been quick. Uh, kind of almost anywhere that the fish could have spat Jonah up, Nineveh was at least 500 miles away from that. So this was probably at least a month-long journey that he takes, maybe longer, likely longer. And once he arrived, the city was large. This is a very large city. Uh, it says that it was three days' journey in breadth. Now, what that, what that most likely means is not that it would like take three days to walk all around the perimeter or three days to walk through it. It means that it was kind of like a, you know, sometimes people will say, in order to see all of Chicago, you need three days to kind of see all the important parts of it, or however many days you'd say. <clears throat> Similar idea. Like, it takes three days to kind of hit all the important parts, to kind of get to all the critical por- portions of the city of Nineveh. And as verse 4 says, if you notice this, look down your Bibles, verse 4, Jonah began his prophetic preaching one day into his trip into the city. And as we're going to see in a few moments, that preaching starts what can only really be characterized as this wild revival. This wild revival. You you get the sense that that Nineveh was like this, almost like this bone-dry field. And Jonah's message was like a match going out into it. And the fire just spreads to everything it touches. Which is extraordinary because if you look at the content of Jonah's message in verse 4, you see what he says. He says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, there's probably a bit more to the message. This likely wasn't the only thing he said while he was in Nineveh. Um, And at the very least, the Ninevites would have likely been aware that Jonah was an Israelite prophet, so they would have had some context to know the God that he was speaking of. Um, But (laughs) it is still extraordinary that the revival happens so 
uh, holistically and fast through the city because it's a message of judgment. It's a message of God's wrath coming to the city. This is hard, I think, for us to imagine what this would have been like. I was trying to think, like, okay, maybe it's like a guest preacher coming here today and saying, you all have till September, uh, what day is it? September 16th would be 40 days from today, I think. September 16th before you were all destroyed. Just hard to kind of wrap our minds around like what that would actually feel like. I think a, a closer analogy that some of us might be more familiar with is a doctor saying, it's cancer, and you will be lucky to live out the month. Right, which is this sense of kind of impending doom and helplessness. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this is where we come to our first aspect of true repentance. When God's word tells you that you've offended the Almighty God with your sin, you believe it. It's right there at the beginning of verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Now, you may have heard people say at different points that the gospel is offensive, the good news of Jesus is offensive. Um, this is why. This is why. Because to accept God's mercy, you have to recognize that you need God's mercy, that you need it. And Romans 3.23 is really clear on this point. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that verse ought to fill anyone who's not in Christ with a sickening sense of impending doom that you have offended the Almighty God. If you're in Christ with a sense of relief that you've narrowly escaped death and judgment and wrath before the God of all things. God's word calls all of us sinners. All of us have offended the Almighty God. And even if it's easy for us to ignore our sin, God does not ignore sin. So everything that anyone has done or said or looked at or thought that isn't entirely pure is sufficient to invite the righteous judgment of God. But that almighty God is also merciful, and he's gracious. And so he chooses to expose our sins to us and warn us of the consequences of sin through his word. If you've ever had someone introduce you to a board game and not tell you the rules until you break them, until after you break them, it's a maddening experience. Um, it's not what God does. It's not how he acts towards us. He gives us warnings through his word of what our sin will do, the consequences of our sin. And when that happens, when God's word shows us that we are sinners, when God kindly shows you your sin and warns you of the consequences, that is a very critical moment. Because it's a moment when you can choose the path of repentance or you can choose the path of death. If you ignore the warnings of Scripture, then that is a path towards death and towards wrath. The path of repentance is believing God's word. You are a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy. And the next part of repentance is to then turn from that sin. To believe God's word and to turn from your sin. So let's continue on in our passage. Look down again in your Bibles to verses 5 through 9. And we'll look at our second point, that true repentance is demonstrated by turning away from sin. So again, read the second half of verse 5 through verse 9 with me. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the revival is happening. The wildfire is lit. It's burning through every part of the city. It goes from the slums to the palace. And not even the king escapes the, the fire of this conviction because no one is sinless. And so we see him take off his, his, his robes, his royal robes, in this act of humility, put on these mourning clothes of sackcloth, and he sits in the dust. It's a very, very public display of his, of his grief over their sin. Now, sackcloth is basically what it sounds like. It's the sack. It's made of... Camel or, or goat skin is very uncomfortable, very ugly, looked like a sack. Um, it was ugly enough that there were certain palaces in the ancient Near East that wouldn't even allow you in if you were wearing it. That's the level of ugliness. Um, and it was this way, as you, can, as you might surmise from the text, it was this way, outward way to show an inward sense of humility and grief over your sin. Um, so it's similar to wearing, how wearing black today might be an outward way to show an inward grief. So that's what everyone, including this king, does. He, rem- you know, if he removes his suit and tie, I suppose, if you will, um, puts on a sack to express his humility before God, and then he commands the citywide fast. Not even the animals are supposed to eat. Um, in order for the city to cry out to God for mercy. In verse 8, the king tells everyone to call out mightily to God and to turn from their violence, to turn away from their sin. So true repentance believes God's word, and then it turns from sin. But those two things, the king recognizes, does not erase the evil of what he had done. Didn't erase the wickedness that was on his hands and the hands of the people in Nineveh from that came. At least from what we can tell here, the primary sin that they were accused of here was executing men and women and children using the really violent and hideous tactics that we know the Assyrians used. The king recognizes this, and he says in verse 9, and this is kind of where we see him just throwing himself and the city onto God's character. Who knows? Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So all the city can do now is repent, throw themselves onto the character of God, and hope that he decides to spare them. Now, if the Almighty God was capricious... If he acted on whims, they likely would not have survived. These Assyrians had tortured and desecrated people that God himself had knit together. So if God had acted like a vindictive God or like any human father would act towards someone who had done those things to his children, then the Assyrians would not have survived. There was no, they had no shot. But God is not capricious. He is not vindictive. As we know, he is full of mercy and grace. He's faithful to do what he promises. In Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 8, God says this. 
If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So this was written after Jonah's time, but it shows us something that has always been true about God and will always be true. That he will relent of disaster when nations repent of their wickedness. That included Israel, and it included Assyria, and it included the city of Nineveh, which was not a, a, a nation in the sense of a nation state, but it was a distinct group of people. Now, to just take a very brief aside here, one of the implications of this passage, I think, is very clearly that God does deal with groups of people, with groups of people in a corporate way, in some kind of corporate sense. And I think we can safely extrapolate that both from Jonah 3 and from Jeremiah 18. And so, if that is the case, that God does deal with groups of people in a corporate way, and I think it's appropriate and I think it's important that we, as God's people, Pray for revival towards that end, towards the end of groups of people coming to repentance. We pray for citywide and even nationwide revival, which I know is, is, is something that seems impossible to us, um, but it's also something that should have seemed impossible to anyone who knew the wickedness of these Assyrians. They were beyond wicked, but they were not beyond the reach of God. In fact, their their level of wickedness, in a sense, only increased the praise of God's glory when they chose to turn to God's mercy to save them from their sin. So if God can save an Assyrian city, his his mercy is far deeper than anything that we really can comprehend and understand, but we know that it is not deeper than anything that any nation can commit. So I want to encourage us as, as God's people to be praying towards this end, that we, that we, as we pray, that we incorporate prayers for groups of people, for our country, for our cities, for our state even, for different groups, people groups that are in our, in our lives. God can save all of those different groups of people, and he doesn't do it through political or other means. He does it, as we see here. He relents from disaster when people repent of their sin and turn to him. So let's pray towards that end as God's people. Now the Ninevites might not have realized this, but when their king humbly presented himself in his city before the Lord, and they threw their lives into his hands, that was the safest place that they could be. They were trusting that he was going to pull the parachute. It is a sense, in a sense, it's a paradox that the safest place for these Ninevites to be, these wicked but repentant people, was in the hands of the one that they had most offended. But they were safest there because he's merciful. The Ninevites believed God's word. They turned from their sin, and now we'll see our last point. Their repentance was met by God's mercy. So let's go to our last point. True repentance is met by God's mercy. So if you will, look down at your Bibles and read verse 10 with me. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And so I think here we get to the sweetest book verse in this entire book, that God relented. 
So all of the tension of this book is leading up to this moment. Jonah's attempted escape at delivering this message, the fish, God's message to the people in Nineveh, their desperate repentance from their sin. All of it leads to this moment right here. I imagine that was a very long 40 days for that city, since they did believe. But it must have been a very extraordinary feeling when they realized that the Lord God had decided to spare them, that he had relented from his anger. As one theologian put it, Nineveh repented and God relented, which I like. Nineveh repented and God relented. God saved the wicked people of Nineveh, not because they were good, but because he wanted to show mercy to wicked people. That's the God that we serve, one who shows his mercy to wicked people. Their repentance was met with God's mercy. So if you are here today and you are not following Jesus, there is something that I, I want to make, make sure that we're very clear on before you leave. I want to make sure you hear. Uh, there's a message in this chapter of Jonah for you. There's, I'm going to take it in three parts. The first part of the message is this. Repentance is a response to God's word. All right? Repentance is a response to hearing the word of God, which means if you're sitting here and you've been sitting here this whole time and you've been listening, that means you've heard God's word. You have heard God's word to you. And so that, that first part is done. God's word has come to you, has told you that you're a sinner. So don't ignore that you have heard God's word today. Second, repentance does not require a lot of biblical knowledge or even religious language to, to follow. You don't have to do that to repent. As, as you might have noticed this. The king um, tells people that the, that the animals needed to fast too, which is odd, and put on sackcloth, which would have looked funny, but it was also odd because there's nothing, there's no biblical warrant for that. Right? So what we, most likely this was like a pagan superstition that somehow the animals were somehow needing to also put on sackcloth in order to please Yahweh. This is a superstition. It was not something God told them to do, but that didn't matter. God honored the fact that they were recognizing what they'd been told about themselves, their sin, and that their actions of, of sorrow were met by his mercy. And finally, third, finally, if you repent by listening to God's word, believing it, turning from the sin that God exposes through his word, then what I can promise you, what we know from God's word is that he will bless that. He will meet that with mercy because that's what he promises to do. The way that God promises to deal with evil nations has a lot of symmetry with how God deals with individuals. God promises in Jeremiah 18 that he relents from judgment on an evil nation if that nation turns from their evil, and the same goes for people. Any who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Romans 10, 13 says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, if you listen to God's word, if you believe what it says, repent from your sin and call on the name of the Lord, then you know that God will show you mercy. Because instead of making you receive the anger and the wrath for that sin. Instead, what will happen is that Jesus will take that anger and wrath for you. That's what he did on the cross. When he died on the cross, that was the punishment that he took for all who call on his name. So if you haven't placed your hope in Jesus by doing that, I encourage you to do it today. Now for all of us who are followers of Jesus, the pattern of our lives is meant to be characterized by confession of sin 
and conscious turning from that sin. It's part of why we often confess our sins together during, during our congregational prayers, that that's, a, that's, a, that's meant to be a pattern in the Christian life, confessing our sin. And so if you feel as though the Holy Spirit may be pricking your conscience, that there is, there is sin in your life that you need to turn from, that you need to confess to perhaps someone else and to the Lord and turn away from that sin, then I encourage you to do that and, and to use it, Psalm 51 as a way to kind of put words to, to that repentance. Psalm 51 was written by King David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband. And God's word confronted David, and instead of ignoring it, he confessed and repented. And he begins the psalm like this. <clears throat> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So if you notice, David is doing what the Ninevites did. He's throwing himself onto God's character. He's not asking for God's mercy based on himself. He's saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So I encourage you. Use that psalm and use, use confession of sin as a way, to, as a pattern in your life to deal with the sin that is in your heart. And as the, towards the end of Psalm 51, David says this, that a broken heart and a contrite spirit God does not despise. Now I want to end this morning by uh, zooming out briefly, taking a look at this story in the context of Scripture. As, we, as I mentioned at the beginning of, this, of our service, uh, this, this story gives us a beautiful picture into God's heart for worship among the nations. This is a picture of the unstoppable truth that the Lord glorifies himself, and he will glorify himself by bringing people from every language and nation, or excuse me, every language and people and tongue to know him and his mercy. So in a sense, we can see here in Jonah that cross-cultural missions has been going on for millennia, even when the missionaries don't want to do it. When Jonah does not want to go, that does not stop the Lord. He will gather recipients of his mercy from all around the world. One of my favorite phrases that John Piper's coined is this, that missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason that the Lord burdens men and women with a burning desire to go and to tell people about Jesus is because God, this is what God does. He brings worshipers to himself from all around the world. And since there isn't worship in every corner of the earth, then mission's work is going to continue. The story of Nineveh gives us this small picture into God's heart for the nations and the peoples of the world. And for us, the more that we see and enjoy the beauty of the mercy of God, the greater our desire will be for everyone to know this good news the plan of salvation through Jesus. And for any of us, whether we're Christian or not, whether we're Syrian or American, whatever your nationality might be, all of us are left in the same position at the cross of Jesus, that our only hope is in God's mercy. And the promise that God's mercy is given to any who repent by believing in God's word, turning from their sin and calling on the name of the Lord. We have to trust that Jesus did what he said he did on the cross, and we can trust that he did, that he forgives any who call on his name, because he won't change. 
Who he is won't change. And so the promise that he will forgive all who call in his name for mercy, you can know will never change as well. Let's pray. Father, as we see this picture of your heart for the salvation of the nations, we are left in awe of your mercy that you would save people like this and that you would save us. So Father, I ask that if there are any here who are not certain of this, who are in need of the painful surgery of a confrontation with your word, help them to see they are sinners in need of help, in need of salvation. I ask that you would give them the same burning conviction that you gave to the Ninevites, that they'd not be able to rest before they have acknowledged their sin and have turned from those ways of life, and that they would call on your name. I ask that through your word that you would give them the sweet confidence that you promise to save any who call in the name of Jesus. We ask that you'd be at work in our body, in our church body, and we ask that you'd be at work in the church worldwide to raise up men and women who want to see the nations worship you, that you would then send them to proclaim your good news, that Christ came to save sinners. And we ask that you would continue to bring worshipers from all the earth to join in glorifying your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.